0: If you are new, our, our church turned in questions that they were interested in in May and June, and I have been trying to answer as many of those as I can get to. I've already apologized because I can't get to all of them, uh, but uh, we're going to get to a few more this morning, and I have gone over every single time in this series. I'm so sorry. I went over for service. They've cut one song just to see if I can get it under the wire. I wouldn't bet on it. So I want to get right to the first question. Before I do, just real briefly, thank you for all of the memes and screenshots of alien stories that you sent me this week. I I appreciate appreciate the way you're buying into that. Don't know if you noticed, but uh, Congress held hearings on aliens because of last Sunday's message. That's what that's what I'm going with. That's what I'm I'm going. We we have influence in the world. If you didn't know that, okay. Here we go. First question for today is. How did they eat in biblical times and should we model our diets after them? There was an additional question, and I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing, but it was along the lines of uh, do we obey the Old Testament laws or do we forget about all of those and just concentrate on what Jesus said in the Gospels, that sort of thing. Very common question, uh, some, somewhat difficult topic. I'm going to do the best that I can to try and, and get it answered. I think these two questions came out of the Moses series. If you were here May, June, we, we did a series on Moses. I loved teaching that series. The challenge with that series was what to include and what to not include because I couldn't include everything in five weeks. And so we didn't really get into the law, but I think as we tracked through Moses' leadership... These are the questions that naturally would come to mind. So uh, let, let's jump into it. When we ask the question, how did they eat in, in, in Bible times and should we eat the way they ate? Should we model our diet after? I would say first, uh, it depends on where in the Bible you're talking about. If you kind of parachute into different places in the Bible, you find people eating different things. For example, in the garden before sin, before the fall, this is Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground everything that has the breath of life in it i give every green plant for food and it was so apparently in genesis 1 everybody and every animal was a vegetarian or or even a vegan there were no carnivores in genesis chapter 1 and genesis chapter 2 so that is one way of eating. Uh, if you uh, look at Egypt, when the, the nation was in Egypt, apparently they ate leeks and onions and pots of stew. Uh, the night of the Passover, they cooked a lamb. They had lamb to eat and bread without yeast. In it. if you read the book of Daniel, you remember Daniel and some of his friends are kidnapped and carried away to Babylon. When they get there, the king wants to feed them food and wine, so all kinds of food and wine, and Daniel and his friends say, would you mind if we just eat vegetables and water? Some people call this the Daniel fast. A lot of people in January, they'll do like a 30-day, 40-day Daniel fast. They'll eat only vegetables and water uh, to kind of get all the Christmas out and get back on a better eating plan, right? So so it, it all depends. You get to the New Testament, they're eating everything. Like, they're just going crazy. It's wild in the New Testament. They're just, they're eating everything. Barbecue sandwiches, like the whole thing. They're having everything in the New Testament. So the question, it, it depends on where in the Bible you're talking about. Now, I think I know where the question normally comes from, and I'm going to get to that. Uh, but let me answer the second part. Should we model our diet after some diet, one of those diets that we find, in the Bible, and my answer is: you can if you want. You can if you want. Uh, you're welcome to. Um, pro- probably, a day or two of, of being a vegetarian might not be so bad for us. You know, uh, some vegetables and water. Some pr- maybe some of us we could probably use a couple weeks of vegetables and water. Um, it, you can if you want. If you want to, you're not commanded to. There's not a, thus saith the Lord, you should only eat in this way. Now, we're commanded not to be gluttons. We're commanded not to eat and drink to excess. Uh, we're commanded to take care of our bodies. The Bible, the New Testament calls our bodies the temple of God. Holy Spirit lives in us. God is in us. We should care for our bodies because our bodies are created by God. We bear the image of God in our in our bodies and therefore we, we should we should care for our bodies. All of that is true. Outside of that, outside of excess and, and gluttony and that sort of thing, you are welcome to pick whatever form of diet you want, and there's not necessarily a spiritual component to it. So then the the question is, so why not? Right? Why not? Why does the Bible give these kind of strict instructions in various places? And, and it's okay for us to ignore them. Usually when the, the diet question is asked, it is related to Leviticus, where we get all of these commands about while they were in the wilderness, what they were supposed to eat and not eat. Um, again, if you don't know, uh, I, don't, I don't know who asked all of the questions, But usually, that's where the question is coming from because we get these extensive lists in Leviticus of, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't eat this type of animal if it has this type of hoof. Right? You can eat this animal, not this animal. They're sometimes called clean and unclean animals. This is a clean one; you can eat it. This is unclean; you shouldn't eat it. Um, And so, this question typically comes from the the point of these are very clear commands. Why do we not obey those, but we do obey some of the others, right? Why do we still do some things from the Old Testament, but not all the things? Great question. If you've ever tried to read through Leviticus, you've had that question. Why don't we obey these laws? There's so many of them in there. Let's, let's, let's talk about it. First thing we have to realize is there are different types of laws in the Old Testament, especially that section of the Old Testament with different purposes, different types of law. In the Old Testament, we find dietary laws, ceremonial laws, purity laws, civic laws, moral laws. So we find categories of laws that were given for various purposes. What we should eat is in the dietary law category, but if you broke that law in the Old Testament, it could affect the ceremonial laws. It could affect the purity laws and whether you could go to the tabernacle and whether you could be a part of the worship service. Um, Moses gives, again, a lot of instructions about what you can and can't eat. Many people, and I tend to agree with this, many people who study this section of the Bible think that some of it was God's way of protecting his people while they were wandering in the wilderness, They're wandering for 40 years, there's no refrigerators, there's no Yeti coolers, there's no FDA to check everything out and make sure it's okay. They are also a mass of people, by some estimates, two million people in close proximity to one another, constantly interacting, packing up, moving to a new place, setting up. Disease in that environment could be catastrophic. If disease began to spread, it could be catastrophic in that environment so that's perhaps one of the reasons God says let's not eat animals that tend to carry diseases God's trying to protect his people uh, it, it, it it could be one of the reasons God addresses physical issues like uh, if you have uh, an oozing sore Leviticus is full of this wonderful language if you have an oozing sore Go outside the camp and quarantine for this many days. Certain body conditions, body functions were a reason you would have to go outside of the camp and you would have to quarantine for a couple of days. Part of it, I tend to think, is God's protecting his people from a sanitary perspective. In Leviticus chapter 7, you can look it up later, one of God's commands is if you find a dead carcass as you're walking along that has been torn apart by animals, don't eat that. Now, it's surprising that God has to say that, isn't it? But if you're a parent, you get it because your kid picks up something off the ground and you say, don't eat that. Right? You, they have to be told. And, and God at one point says, All right, I think probably most of you would figure this out, but there's a few of you. Come across a dead animal, been sitting there a few days, don't cook it. That'll be bad for you. So some of this was God saying, I want to protect you. This is my protection over you as you're wandering around in the wilderness. Another aspect with some of the laws that we find in the Old Testament is, is a symbolic way for God to say, you are a different kind of people. Than everybody else around you. You are set apart, the Bible uses, we use the word holy. You are a set apart people. You're not to be like the other nations. You're not to worship the gods that the other nations worship. And so I'm going to implement some laws during this period of time to help you come out from your old experiences and set you apart from other religions. One one of them is uh, they were commanded not to wear mixed fibers in in their clothing. They weren't they weren't supposed to wear mixed fibers. This one's this one gets brought up a lot when people are trying to poke holes in the Old Testament. Like why don't we do that? Everybody here is breaking that law today. Right? Every one of you, you have mixed fibers on in your clothing. Well, well this was a Israel is a symbol for nations to come of purity and holiness. Mixed fibers was a way of, of picturing that. You're to be pure. You're to be holy. You're to be unlike the other nations. God gives the command, don't drink the blood of animals. Right, This was not God's prohibition against having a steak rare. Right, This was God's way of saying, other religions right now, cultures that you came out of in Egypt, the polytheism in Egypt... Uh, the the other uh, religious practices in that area of the world, they drink animals' blood as a part of their religious rituals. I don't want anybody to confuse you for them right now. I don't want you to do that. So God is, is giving these parameters to his people. Some of them are symbolic. Some of them are to try to keep them from going back to pagan religions. And you know, if you've read the story we talked about in Moses, sometimes that worked and sometimes that didn't work. Uh, Some of the laws that God gives are in relationship to worship, to go into the tabernacle. Can you be involved in worship? Can you go make a sacrifice? Again, ceremonial purity. This is clean. This is unclean. But God also gives moral laws. He gives moral laws of how we're to act and how we're to treat each other, how we're to live in community. This is morally what it looks like to be in covenant relationship with God. So how do we know which one of those still apply? My suggestion is that we interpret the Old Testament laws the way Jesus interpreted the Old Testament laws. How did Jesus interact with the laws of the Old Testament? What did he permit? What did he get rid of? Because Jesus in the Gospels, he doesn't give us a case-by-case, every single law uh, dictionary. But he does give us a way of seeing the Old Testament. He he does give us a perspective on the Old Testament. And if we can understand Jesus' perspective, we have a better chance at approaching the Old, Old Testament correctly. Because Jesus came to die for us to be our high priest. The book of Hebrews calls him that. He is the ultimate high priest, greater than all the priests that came before, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than the angels. He is our singular high priest. We no longer need the priestly system. Therefore, we no no longer need the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Jesus did away with that because he became our sacrifice. None of us, hopefully, none of us sacrifice animals in hopes that it will atone for our sins anymore. Why not? Because Jesus atoned for our sins once and for all. He died in our place. He rose again. He conquered sin. He overcame death. Now we don't need to make sacrifices anymore because Jesus' life and death did away with the necessity of that. Jesus' life and death did away with the necessity of purity laws. We are not made pure because we only wear one type of fabric at a time. We are made pure because we now have the righteousness of Jesus. The purity laws were just a symbol. They were just a picture of what was to come. And so we're not commanded to keep those anymore. This is how Jesus interacted with the law. He knew that he was bringing Righteousness. He was giving us His righteousness. So we no longer have to worry about the clothes that we wear. Right? We no longer have to quarantine if we have oozing sores. Although if you have oozing sores, you still might want to quarantine. That wouldn't be a bad thing. But that has nothing to do with our relationship to Jesus. and Nothing to do with our relationship to God. Our purity and righteousness comes because we put our faith in Jesus. And He gives us His Righteousness. Now, in the New Testament, we, we even see Jesus and others addressing the dietary issues. The story of Peter. This is after Jesus goes back to heaven. Jesus, uh, Peter is beginning to lead the, the church of the New, New Testament. He's traveling around, a missionary journey. And in one of, one of those places, he has a dream, he has a vision, and a sheet comes down, and there are all kinds of animals in it. And God says to Peter, go kill and eat. And Peter says, no, I, I can't eat that. Those are unclean. And God says, what God's made clean, don't call unclean. And this, this was God eliminating the dietary laws of the Old Testament and saying to Peter, No, that was for a time. That was symbolic for a time. That no longer applies. Of course, God was also conveying to Peter that the gospel was going to to go to more places than just his little part of the world. That Gentiles were going to come to faith and and, and that the gospel was going to cross racial and ethnic boundaries and it was going to keep spreading. So this was part of the message, but he conveyed it to Peter by saying, this is no longer important. Jesus does the same thing in Mark chapter 7. This is verse 18. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And then Mark gives us this narration. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So notice, Jesus does two things in this one statement. He eliminates the the dietary purity ceremonial laws. He says, you don't have to worry about what you eat. It doesn't go into your heart. It goes into your belly, and, and then it gets goes out of your body. It doesn't affect you. But while he eliminates the dietary laws, he upholds the moral law. Jesus says sexual immorality is still evil. Greed is still evil, murder, adultery, theft, lewdness, envy, slander, slander arrogance, and folly. We don't have to obey The dietary laws, we do still have to obey the moral laws. The moral laws are still right. There is still evil if you begin to act in this way. This is how Jesus viewed the Old Testament law. Yes, there are parts that he fulfilled, right? That was Jesus' message. I didn't come to get rid of the law, I came to fulfill it. Well, he fulfilled. Portions of the law that we no longer need, we no longer need to obey. But at the same time, he elevated the moral aspects of the law, and so you still need to live this way in covenant relationship with God. You still need to live out these moral commands. They don't save you. They don't get you to heaven. You have you have power to live in this way because of Jesus, but they are still. Important. So when it comes to the Old Testament law, we aren't picking and choosing as much as we're asking how did Jesus view the Old Testament law. We're, we're not saying none of it matters. We don't even need to read it. It's not, none of it's useful. No, Jesus found it to be useful. It teaches us. It helps us understand who God is. And there's much of the Old Testament law that still applies. One other thought. Jesus removed the penalty for breaking the law. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, removed the penalty for breaking the law. There are, if, you, if you've ever read this section of Scripture, there are some rather severe penalties for breaking, Even what we would consider to be the most minor of commands, right? Lots of stoning, lots of dying in the Old Testament. You find it all throughout the Bible, rather severe punishments. Jesus comes along and takes the ultimate penalty for our sins for us. He steps into our place so we don't have to die for everything we do wrong. We don't have to be stoned every time we make a mistake. No, no, Jesus took that punishment for us. Death doesn't have to be our punishment anymore. Jesus offers life. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be punishments, there shouldn't be consequences within our legal system. I'm saying that we can't necessarily lift out punishments from the Old Testament and say, well, we should still implement this punishment. If you want to talk about picking and choosing, this is where we pick and choose. None of us, hopefully, would say that a child who disobeys their parents should be stoned to death. Right? You may feel it in the moment like you want to stone them to death. But none of us would say in 2023, an American legal system, when any child disobeys their parents, kill them. Like, we would never say that. And yet, we read other portions of the Old Testament law that talk about death punishment, and we say, well, we should pull that out, and we should implement that in our legal system. We should implement that in our justice system. you got to be very careful. I'm, I'm not saying the Old Testament doesn't give us insight into right and wrong and, and what should be illegal— I, I'm saying that we can't just lift punishments out of thousands of years ago, copy-paste, and drop them into 2023. We we aren't Old Testament Israel. We aren't. There is no Old Testament Israel today. Israel in the Old Testament was a, a theocracy. It, it was... It was not just a gathering of God's people. It, it was a civic society. A civic society under God's rule, a theocracy. There's not one of those today. We aren't one of those today. Okay? America is not today's version of Israel from the Old Testament. That's, that's not who we are. We, we, we aren't God's chosen country more loved than any other country. It's wonderful blessings for being in America. I'm so happy that I live here and was born here. It's wonderful blessings for being in America. But we aren't the modern-day Israel. That's not who we are. Therefore, we have to be very careful saying, well, these civic laws were applied in the Old Testament. Therefore, they should be applied in our country today. Again, they can inform. They can give us some insight But we need to be very careful pulling passages out and trying to insert them without some thought into what we believe today. For example, we can have a longer discussion if you want to have one. For example, you can be a Christian and be opposed to the death penalty. Those two things can coincide. You can be a Christian and be opposed to the death penalty as I am. I haven't always been opposed to the death penalty. I am today and have been for some for some time. I don't think the Bible compels us as a Christian, as a citizen, to support the death penalty. Now, I, I think you can be a Christian and support the death penalty. I, I understand all the sides of the argument. I just don't think the Bible says you have to. Like, for me, I think... Uh, this is one of those issues that we can prove statistically, clearly, that in our country we are unable to fairly implement that punishment across the board. It's verifiable, it, it, it's provable. You've seen the stories, you've gone to the movies. You've gone to the movies about the person who was on death row for 30 years and then some lawyer got in there and found some new details and they got off and you left so relieved. This happens all the time and they don't make movies out of all of them. They don't make movies out of all of them. Okay. So for me, I'm not saying you have to feel like I do. I'm saying we need to be careful picking this up and saying, well, we have to do it this way. For me, I don't think we can equitably, in fairness enforce the death penalty, a punishment that there's no going back from. Like once it's carried out, you don't get to go back and redo it. Okay, so, so for me, I can't support that when we've proven again and again that we aren't always fair. Socioeconomic issues, racial issues, cloud our judgments sometimes in our justice system. We're never going to avoid that, but when it comes to taking life That's something I can't support. Again, I'm not telling you 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 can't support it and be a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I think I have the freedom to not support it, even though there's a lot of stoning going on in the Old Testament. Let me give you you just an example from Jesus. If we're going to interpret the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, think about this story. John chapter 8, the religious leaders drag a woman caught in the act of adultery into the street and throw her naked at Jesus' feet. And they said, Jesus, the law, this law, the law says she should be stoned to death. And Jesus said, well, first one without sin, shoot away. And then he bends down and he starts writing in the sand And for 2,000 years, people have tried to guess what he was writing. We don't know what he was writing, but he's doodling in the sand. And one by one, all the religious leaders leave. And Jesus looks at the woman and says, where are your accusers? And she looks up, maybe for the first time, and realizes there's nobody there but her and Jesus. And she says, no one accuses me. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, the law, the law of Moses... The religious leaders were right. The punishment for adultery is you should be stoned to death, and yet Jesus did not implement that punishment in that moment because he knew he had come to take her punishment for her. He was going to die for her. This is how Jesus read. This is how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament law when it came to this punishment now this is not the reason necessarily but embedded in this story if you picked up on it the undercurrent of this story is injustice right because last time i checked the act of adultery takes two people not one person and in this situation where they were demanding the death penalty one person had to die and somehow the other one got off so, somehow, the justice system protected one of the accused but demanded that the other one die. Just something to think about. Next question. How do I process hurt from another church to allow myself to not feel as if all churches are the same? What a weighty, weighty, honest question. Honest question. So thankful uh, for this question. I th- This was one of, of many of the... The, mo- the majority of the questions, as I told you, came in anonymous, anonymously. This person had texted me in the middle of the last service and identified themselves. So I, I do know who wrote this and, and just a little bit about their... Experience which I didn't know in, in the first service, actually. But, but I, I appreciate this question. Church hurt is real. Uh, people have been hurt by, by churches, by leaders, by pastors, by, by staff members, by uh, volunteers within the church. Church hurt is real, and, and we're at a time where a, a lot of people are processing this. A, a lot of people are kind of swimming in these waters, not just because, but largely because the the documentaries just kind of keep rolling out about different churches and pastors and and ministries, and so we had the the Mars Hill Rise and Fall of Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll, and and we've had multiple documentaries about Hillsong, uh, James MacDonald and the megachurch in Chicago. Stuff just continues to pour out of that one, uh, the Duggar docu series that that LinkedIn Bill Gothard and that whole. Some of these names mean nothing to you. Uh, for some of you, you recognize some or all of those names. We've just had this series of catastrophic failure, whether it be moral failure, whether it be abusive leadership, whether it be financial failure, um, sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Church, sexual abuse in other churches. Week after week, it seems like there's another story. That this is happening, it's coming to light, and yes, understandably people are hurt by this. There are victims as a part of this. It, it, to the person who wrote it, and, and I now know who this is, but I would say to that person, the fact that they were willing to submit this question to me is a good sign. And it's a good sign from a from a couple of different Directions number one: They're they're bringing it out in the light, which is what we have to do sometimes. Maybe we're not always ready to do that, but at some point, those deep wounds, those deep hurts, we got we got to bring them out. We got to talk about them at some point. And and I so appreciate in this person their willingness to do that. The, The other good sign from this question is that. It tells me this person, and maybe you're like this person, this person hasn't completely given up hope in the church. They're willing to give us one more chance, maybe. They're willing to try one more church, one more pastor, one more small group. They're willing to see if somewhere this is real to anybody, and that speaks volume about that person just that they still have a little bit of hope left and I'm thankful for that some thoughts I'll try to be as as brief as I can what I would say to anyone who has experienced church hurt is it's okay to walk slowly through the process it is don't feel like you got to go right back okay I'm not trying to rush you Uh, I don't know the details of your story It's okay to to know this is going to take a little bit of time for me to trust again, for me to believe again, for me to have hope again. It's okay. No one needs to make you think that you should just snap back. It's okay to walk slowly through the process, but I would say on the other side of that, stay in the process. Stay in the process. Don't get stuck. Don't bail out. Don't quit. You may have to hang in one spot for a little while, but begin to take small steps, slow steps forward. Maybe you're not ready to rush back to everything you used to do. I have this conversation occasionally with people. They've been in another place where they were hurt, and they come here, and and I meet them, and they say, look, I'm not ready to jump right back in. I understand. I understand. You may not be ready to, to snap right back. That's okay. Just keep walking forward. I I know there are no perfect churches, and we all know that, right? Theoretically, there are no perfect churches. There are no perfect pastors, trust me. There, there, there are no perfect staff members and no perfect organization. There just aren't. But I still believe in the church because I've seen what God does in, in his family. I, I've seen the relationships that are built. I, I, I've heard stories, even just this week, stories of, of, of somebody being in this building, and, and I would have never in a million years guessed their story, and they just shared it all with me this week, and it was something only God could have done, only God could have done. And we get to see that. We get to experience that because we're part of the family. We we get to grow with one another. We get to serve one another. We get to encourage one another. I I, I just believe in the church. I, I still believe that the church is the primary vehicle of God accomplishing His work in the world, of bringing His kingdom just a little bit closer to earth. I believe the church, the local church, is still the primary means that He does that. Having said that, I've been hurt by church many times, many times. And I don't say that flippantly. I don't say that to dismiss what you've been through. I just say that so you know. Like I, I've been hurt many times. I grew up in a pastor's family. When my dad was a pastor, as a teenager, I saw it in our family. I saw what happened to my dad. I saw the struggles that he went through. I saw how people can be. In the church. I get it. (laughs) The church and of course my, my career has largely been in the church, so maybe that explains this. I have never been lied about more than I have in churches. I've never been mischaracterized more in secular society than I was than I have been in the church. I've never been hurt by unbelievers to the degree that I've been hurt by believers. And I, and I just say that to say, I get it. This is real. It stays with you. It hurts. Um, something that was important to Julie and I, and, and this doesn't apply to everybody, but I, I felt like I, I wanted to say it because it's part of our experience, Um. If you are a parent processing church hurt, that, then I, I wanna I want to ask you to consider how you want your children to feel on the other side of this process. Consider how you want your children to feel on the other side of this church hurt process. I don't wanna add more pressure to what you're already going through. Right? You, you, you're already trying to figure something out. But, but when you and I walk through church hurt, we don't stop being parents. And we don't stop being the primary spiritual guide for our children if they're still in our home. And if you're a parent who has been hurt by the church, I, I just ask you to consider, what do you want your children to see? How do you want your children to view the church because the way you walk through this process will impact how your kids view the church. And initially depending on what the hurt is, initially uh, we're sometimes tempted to say, "I don't care. I hope they hate the church. I hope my kids never go to church." I mean, I get that visceral emotional response when it comes to church, but your kids are going to need the church one day. Like there there are things that the church can do and give to your kids that you want them to receive one day. And while you may be able to separate God and the church, you may be able to do that. You may be able to say, well, I don't like the church, but I still love God. Your kids aren't going to be as good at it as you are. Their impression of God is going to be linked to the way you talk about God's people and the church. They're going to see God through that lens of what you experience. Again, I'm not trying to put pressure on you, but, but I would say nothing is gained by making the church an enemy in the eyes of your children. Nothing is gained. And a lot of harm can happen. What, what that meant for us was um, probably the, the first really big church hurt we experienced. Our girls were very little. And we, we didn't really need to say a lot. They weren't where they could handle that information. They didn't need that information. And so we just tried to protect their hearts through that and the way we spoke about the experience, the way we spoke about the people involved. We just we tried to shepherd their hearts through that. Um, uh, another one happened when our girls were teenagers they were very aware there was no way of hiding what was happening there was no way of shepherding and shielding them from everything that was happening and so we did have conversations of this is this is what's happening and And this is why we feel it's happening. And this is how we're going to respond. We didn't give them all the details. They still didn't need all of the details. But we knew we had a responsibility to walk them through that time of hurt and continue to say, you know what, God is still good. God is still good, and this church doesn't represent every church. And we still love the church, and we're still going to be in a church, and we're going to still be committed to church ministry. We had that responsibility, and if you're a parent in that situation, I, I just urge you to do that. Uh, another suggestion, try to find relational connection within the church, whatever may be the new church that you went to or, or, or whatever that was. Try, try to find relational connection. That may be in a community group. That may be in, in serving somewhere, but it also may be just trying to find somebody to go to coffee with. Just so you know somebody. When we're hurt, it is tempting, if we try church again, it is tempting to kind of sit by ourselves and get in late and and jump out early as quickly as we can. Understand, you may need a, a time of that. You may need a period of that. At some point, open yourself to relational connection in the church. The journey out of any hurt is never a solo journey. It's just not. The journey out of any hurt, it's never a solo journey. We need people. Maybe not 100 people, but maybe 2 people, maybe 10 people. There are, of course, inner work that only you can do. There's inner work that only I can do. But the journey out of church hurt is never going to be accomplished completely by yourself. Try to find relational connection. I didn't know where to put this comment, but I felt like I needed to put this comment in here, <clears throat> and, and this is not directed at the person who turned the question in, and it's not to minimize church hurt. I just feel like in these conversations, we need to have this conversation too, and it's simply this. <clears throat> Don't misuse the idea of church hurt <clears throat> and allow it to be an excuse. <clears throat> Don't misuse the idea of church hurt. <clears throat> and allow it to be an excuse. Whenever language becomes popular, whenever a topic becomes ubiquitous, like everybody's talk, talking about in the docuseries are rolling out and and people are rejecting their faith and and you know, this topic is is discussed a lot. It can be easy to perceive everything in our life as church hurt, and everything's not church hurt. You know, get another very sensitive example I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive everything is not trauma everything's not trauma trauma is real people have experienced trauma we, we, we need to deal in healthy manners with trauma not everything is trauma and because that word gets used so much there can be a tendency to say that everything is trauma everything's not trauma And when we call everything trauma, we minimize the reality of what it does to the people who experience it. I'll pick on the teenagers because they're easy and won't defend themselves. Uh, Teenagers, if your parents tell you that you can't stay out all night with your friends, that's not trauma. (laughs) that's, That's good parenting. That's not trauma. But, but sometimes because these words these are very important words and very important topics, and sometimes words get used so much that we just start attaching them. Not everything is church hurt. Sometimes we just have a disagreement or we want a church that does this, and the church we're at doesn't do that. They do this. That's not church hurt. That's just uh, they, they don't do something that I, I wanted them to do. Maybe they can't. Maybe not uh, No church can do everything all the time. So so let's be careful that we don't minimize this topic by claiming everything is church hurt and then using that excuse to just not go to church. And, And I'm over time again, but a lot of that has happened the last few years. That's all I'll say. A lot of that has happened. People have picked up on a disagreement, called it church hurt, and they never went back to church again. Another suggestion Uh, Talk to a trained counselor if needed. Um, There are trauma-informed counselors who can help you with this wound. That is not weakness. That is not a lack of faith. That is wisdom. If you have a wound, if you've experienced this, you may need to talk to someone professionally, someone who is trained to walk through trauma maybe it's not specifically church hurt but they they're trained they're trauma informed in their counseling and they can help you work through that that's a good thing and if you need it we can help put you in touch with someone who can help you something else remember that a person and not all people hurt you a person and not all people hurt you it, it's very easy to go from specific to general it's very easy for something to become uh, I got hurt at this church all churches do that I was hurt by this pastor all pastors are that way for me in working through various seasons of church hurt it was always helpful not in an angry or vindictive sense but to remember you know what it was really this person this came from that person the, this, this was the product of this group of people it wasn't everybody everybody it wasn't the whole thing. It certainly wasn't every church. To be very specific, this came from this person. And, and, and when you do that, you know, often, as there is with me, there, there's a thought, yes, but other people allowed it to happen or, like, other people didn't defend us or other people didn't protect. All of that's true. But number one, again, that's that's a specific group of people. It's not all people. And often when that happens, that group, They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say in the moment. They were trying to figure out what was going on. And by the time they figured out what was going on, the thing had already happened. Just some clarity about this isn't everybody. This was this event. This was this person. And yes, there are people who believe that person. There are people who still believe that person about that thing that happened. But that's not everybody. That's not the whole church, so try to be try to be specific and and as as I do that I think as you do that, you will find that that thing loses some of its grip over you i i I don't know how forgiveness happens in really hard circumstances, like what is the one, two, three steps I, I'm less and less Comfortable commanding that people forgive as if you could just do it right now. I mean, forgiveness is usually a process. It's usually like over the weeks and years. And sometimes, sometimes I don't even think we know when we've done it. But we do know when one day we wake up and we realize, you know, I haven't thought about that thing in a week. I, I don't get up every day thinking about it. It's losing some of its grip over me that, that can happen. Last thing. Remember that Jesus is our healer. Ultimately, Jesus is our healer. Um, Hopefully, hopefully if you're in this church, it feels healthy and not too weird and and trustworthy. Um, Hopefully, you find a church after that experience, and you feel like, okay, I, I, I can be here. But that church, although it can be a part of your healing, it's not your healer. Jesus is your healer. Jesus is the one that heals hearts. You know, just because your new pastor is not quite as big of a jerk as your last pastor, that might help. Maybe that helps a little bit. But that new pastor is not your healer. Again, hopefully he can be a part of that process. But Jesus is your healer. And when there are those wounds, turn to him. Call out to him. Get to know him better. Pursue him better. Let him be the healer of your heart. Let's pray. God, we love you and we're grateful that you care for us and you are gentle with us, especially when we are wounded. You know that that wonderful Old Testament passage, a bruised reed, he he won't break off. And a smoldering wick, he won't snuff out. When we're at our weakest, when we're at our most broken. You're there to revive us. You're there to heal us. And in the broken parts of our heart, God, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would heal us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.